Hey, thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message today, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9, we'll read the first 15 verses. While you're turning there, let me give you a bit of a heads up. Next Sunday morning, uh, we will have uh, Jimmy Nettles here with us. He will be our interim uh, traditional worship leader. Not only will he be our interim traditional worship leader, but he, uh, that, that interimship could turn into uh, a permanent position. And so uh, he and his wife will be with us next week. Jimmy most recently was the uh, minister of music at First Baptist Church, Smyrna. He's 58 years old. Um, he has a great first name, just an incredible first name. Um, but he looks a whole lot younger than me, even though he's older than me. He looks younger than me. Uh, he and his wife both are great soloists. They both are instrumentalists. Um, she plays a flute. What do you call, is it flautist? Is that what it is, flautist? Uh, and he is, uh, plays guitar as well as other instruments. And uh, so they'll be here with us next Sunday for an interim period that's also uh, kind of a trial period. So, so he can check us out and we can check him out. Jimmy Nettles is his name. So I hope you'll welcome him and his family next week. By the time we get to Joshua chapter 10, the Israelites have conquered Jericho. And then after one defeat at Ai, they finally conquered Ai. And then after they conquered Ai, a town about uh, a day and a half away, Gibeon, the Gibeonites, approached Joshua and the Israelites and fooled uh, the Israelites, fooled them into believing that the Gibeonites were from a long distance away. And therefore, the Israelites made a covenant, an agreement, a peace agreement with them and let them live but they would be servants of the Israelites. And then when, you, when we get to chapter 10, some of the neighboring many nations were very much concerned over the victories of the Israelites and the fact that the Gibeonites had joined forces with the Israelites. And so those, the kings of those various many nations in the area of Palestine declared war against the Gibeonites. And that's where we come to in Joshua chapter 10. Now, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king. And he'd heard that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces they moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. 
Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, so Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekah in Makedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ahelion. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Next month, on August the 21st, you and I, if there are no clouds in the sky, will experience a total solar eclipse. A total solar eclipse occurs when the moon is perfectly aligned between the earth and the sun so that uh, for the few minutes that the moon is, is in between uh, the earth and the sun, there is a, a darkness, there is a cooling off of the temperature, there is a big bright ring in the sky with a, what looks to be a hole in the middle of it where the moon is. It will happen on August the 21st, 2017. Uh, it is a rare occurrence when there is a total eclipse. Uh, over the next 100 years, there will be approximately 69 times where somewhere on earth people will be able to see a solar eclipse. Uh, about 69 times over the next 100 years. In other words, every year and a half, somebody on earth can witness a solar eclipse. They don't happen every day or every month or even every year. Even more rare are solar eclipses that are visible from North America, where you and I live. Uh, and even more rare than that are solar eclipses that can be seen in a path that begins on the coast of the Atlantic Ocean, the, uh, on the, uh, the American coast of the Atlantic Ocean, and can be seen in contiguous states all the way from the Atlantic Ocean coast to the Pacific coast. That kind of solar eclipse occurs very rarely. I was reading one article about uh, that solar eclipse, and the, the writer of the article was saying uh, that the last time in North America that a solar eclipse had gone from the Atlantic coast all the way to the Pacific coast, 
in a path that, that uh, followed the contiguous United States, the last time that happened was in the early 1900s. If that's so, then the last time that it occurred was over a century ago. But I returned to that article sometime later and saw that the, the, the writer of the article had posted an, a correction at the bottom of the article. Someone had corrected him and told him that, that that particular solar eclipse did not go all the way across the United States in a contiguous path, but rather the last time it had really happened was 1776 in the year that our country was born. So I don't know if it was 19... Uh, the early 1900s, 1907, 1908, or 1776, I think the point here is it's an extremely rare occurrence. If you want to get directly in the path of that solar eclipse, then on August the 21st, you'll need to go to Clayton, Georgia, which will be the closest place that you and I can go to see it directly. Other than that, we'll see it somewhat in an off-angle way. Uh, such a solar eclipse is a rare phenomenon. An even rarer phenomenon occurred to the sun in Joshua chapter number 10. In Joshua chapter 10, Joshua has received a request from the Gibeonites to come help them because all of the kings of the Amorite nations, Amorite many nations, had convened and they were attacking the Gibeonites, because the Gibeonites had made a peace treaty with Israel. And so the Gibeonites sent it to Joshua saying, come help us. And so Joshua and his army uh, marched all night long without sleeping. And they got to Gibeon probably sometime around sunup, and they started battling the, the, uh, the Amorite nations. And God gave them victory over the Amorite nations. Not only did they, did they uh, uh, rout them there in the uh, suburb of Gibeon, but as the Amorite armies began to flee, Israel pursued them. And somewhere along in that time, still in the late morning, Joshua recognized that he would need more time than what that day would that day's worth of sunlight would give him to defeat the the fleeing Amorites. He did not want them to have a full night to regroup and then come back and attack his army, which was by this time uh, more than 24 hours without sleep, and therefore they would be weakened. So he prayed to God, a very unusual prayer. He asked for the sun to stand still and for the moon to cease moving from where it was. And the Bible says here in, John, in uh, Joshua chapter 10 that, God did exactly what Joshua asked. He made the sun stand still and made the moon stand still for a, a, a process or a length of about a full day, the text says. And during that extra light, that extra daylight, Joshua and his army was able to see well enough to continue pursuing the Amorite nations, the Amorite armies, and finally defeat them. Last verses in, uh, that I read here, verses 13 through 15, says the sun stopped in the middle of the sky, delayed going down about a full day. There's never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely, the Lord was fighting for Israel, and then Joshua returned with all Israel back to his camp at the city of Gilgal. 
Most of the discussion about this passage in scholarly circles throughout Christian history has revolved around whether God actually made the sun stand still so that Joshua and his army would have more time to fight the Amorites. Uh, In evangelical circles, which we are part of, we've always believed that it indeed did happen, and just as Joshua had asked God to do and that God had done it. There's another passage in the Old Testament. I'm not going to preach on this other passage, but it, it has something similar that happens with the sun. We find it in 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. In 2 Kings 20, King Hezekiah is king over Judah, and the Bible says that he has come down with a, with a terminal illness, and God sent Isaiah to Hezekiah saying, you need to set your house in order for you're going to die and not live. And Hezekiah, rather than set his house in order, he commenced to praying, asking God to, to heal him of this sickness and to uh, give him more time. And Isaiah turned from delivering this stark news, was on his way home when God said to him, go back, tell him I've heard his prayer, and I'm going to give him 15 more years to live. And so he came back, Isaiah did, and told him that God had heard his prayer and that God would give him a sign to show that he was going to give him an extra 15 years. I I suppose it wasn't enough of a sign that he would actually recover from his illness And so Hezekiah said, I'd like to have another sign. And and Isaiah says, well, I'll tell you what, God will give you a sign. And you choose choose which sign you want. In one of them, the the sun will will go forward 10 steps. King James says 10 degrees, but in Hebrew, it was actually units or steps. He said either either the shadow can go down uh, 10 units, 10 steps, or it can go back 10 steps. And Hezekiah said, well, it's really nothing but normal for the, for the shadow to go down 10 steps. Uh, so I asked for a sign that says that the uh, shadow will go backward 10 steps. And the Bible says in 2 Kings 20 that God, uh, gave, uh, God gave Hezekiah that in, in 2 Kings 20, beginning with verse 8. Hezekiah had asked Isaiah, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I will go to the temple of the Lord on my third day from now? And Isaiah answered, this is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or shall it go back 10 steps? It is a simple matter for the shadow to go forward 10 steps, Hezekiah said. Rather, have it go back 10 steps. And then the prophet Isaiah called on the Lord, and the Lord made the shadow go back the 10 steps it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. You know, if we were to ask the question, did God really do these things as the Bible indicates that he did? Uh, another question would be, could God have done these? And, and I think that we would all have to answer, if we believe God to be who God says he is in God's word, we'd have to say, absolutely, yes, God could have done those things. But a question that is uh, closer to the minds and hearts of most people today, whether Christian or non-Christian, two questions I think that are more at heart are these. Could God make the sun stand still today? And not only that, but would God make the sun stand still today? And I think the answer to that first question is absolutely. If God could do it back then, as we believe he did, then certainly God, because he's God and God can do anything God wants to do, God can make the sun stand still today. 
The question then I think that is even more relevant is would he? Would he? Now that's a different question from could he? Could he? I don't think there's any debate. Would he? That would spark some debate. Uh, for instance, if I ask you, if, if, if I ask you uh, tomorrow, uh, in the middle of the morning, to, to, to sincerely ask God to make the sun stand still for a space of about a day. Would you believe that he'd do it, even if you ask it? This is not a question on could he. He can. He did. The question here is, would he now? And I would have to answer that question for me. Now, I'm not answering it for you. I want to answer the question Probably not. Probably not. And most modern scholars, even conservative scholars, concede that he probably would not do it today even though he is fully capable, fully able, God is, to make the sun stand still. But they say that he probably would not do it because we already have God's Word that is full of these kinds of miracles and therefore because they're recorded in God's Word, we don't need these type of miracles today. I think it's a good point. Of course, this discussion eventually evolves into a debate over the literary accuracy of Scripture. If, if the Scriptures are accurate, then yes, God did make the sun stand still. And, and although there are some passages in the Bible where the text leads more to a metaphorical meaning rather than a literal meaning, there are other texts that, that lean more toward a literal meaning than a figurative or metaphorical meaning. This particular text is told in the, con in, in the way of a, a story as though it is history. And for this reason, most evangelical scholars believe that this event is literally historical. Um, and I think that's probably where most of us land. I will tell you that a literal understanding of certain scriptures have got the church in trouble over uh, the years of Christian history. Uh, if you look at both these passages, the one in Joshua 10 and the one in, in uh, 2 Kings 20 that have to do with, with the sun, God doing something with the sun that he does not normally do, if you look at those, then, then they, lend, they lend credence to the understanding that the earth is still and the sun is what moves around the earth and the moon is what moves around the earth. Now, we know in our day of technology that that this text is really not saying that the earth is still stationary and the other parts of the solar system revolve around the earth. But back as, as recently as the uh, 1500s and early 1600s, that was the official church belief about the solar system. It was what we call a geocentric belief about the solar system. Geocentric means that they believe that the, the solar system, and in some cases the whole universe, revolved around the earth. The Greek word for earth is G, or land is G, therefore geocentric, revolves around the earth. That, and that was the church's position in the 1500s and even into the early 1600s. And they based it upon Bible passages such as 
what we see in Joshua chapter 10 and what we see in 2 Kings chapter 20, as well as some other passages, some of them in the poems of the Psalms that speak about the earth being unmovable in the face of our awesome God. And so they took those literally. And therefore, the church's stance was geocentric with regard to the solar system. Then comes Copernicus in the 1500s who who says, wait a minute, I believe that what we have instead of a geocentric solar system, we have a heliocentric solar system. Helio meaning the sun, that the solar system revolves around the sun. And he was uh, totally dismissed. Later on, you have... A, uh, a man who was not so humble and was a little bit more of an arrogant, smart aleck type person. His name was Galileo Galilei. And Galileo picked up on Copernicanism, which, which means that the solar system revolves around the sun. And he started promoting in his, science, uh, in his scientific lectures that the uh, solar system revolved around the sun. And the church took him to task on that. They even brought him in in the early 1600s and told him that he could no longer teach. This was in 1616. They brought him before the church, before Pope Paul V, and they told him that he could no longer support the idea that the solar system revolves around the sun. And when he asked them why, they said, because the literal rendering of the Bible passages teaches geocentrism, not heliocentrism. But in in 1632, 16 years later, Galileo published a book. It was a book that was a fiction. It was a novel. It was called called A Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. And it it was a dialogue between really three people, and each of these three people espoused one of the three main views with regard to the solar system and the universe. There was one fictional character who took Galileo's side and said that the universe, the solar system revolves around the sun. There was another person who took a different view. And then there was another person, and Galileo named him Simplicio, which probably was a mistake, named him Simplicio. And Simplicio, which in Italian means simpleton, a person with a simple mind, he took the idea that the that the solar system revolved around the earth. And the Pope at that time, who up to that point had been a good friend of Galileo, took offense to the book, and they brought Galileo in. They banned his book and Copernicus's book from the libraries of the church. And Galileo was convicted of, quote, vehement suspicion of heresy, unquote, He was tortured and forced to express sorrow and curse his errors, and at the age of 70, he was placed under house arrest, and he stayed there for the final nine years of his life. In his trial, in 1632, he said, uh, the church official said, we are banning your view of the solar system revolving around the sun because it Uh, uh, disagrees with literal renderings of Scripture. And Galileo said, but it's not true. What it really does is, is, is this science helps us more clearly understand Scripture. They didn't accept it, the church didn't, but he was actually right. And ever since that time, 
More often than not, when, when the worldwide church has been in a conflict with science, the church has not looked very well. In the 1850s and 60s in our country, uh, Christian theologians were adamant that African Americans were either two-thirds or three-fourths human. That was after they had determined that they weren't human, but they began to hedge on that a little bit, even though science was telling us that it wasn't the case. We just haven't looked so good. I really think that, uh, not in every case, but in, in a lot of cases, what Galileo said is right. I, I, I ran across a man one day, he was an older man, and he was reading the Bible, and he quoted a verse of Scripture. And I knew, because I had read over that particular verse of Scripture, that he was quoting it wrong. I'm not talking about interpreting, I'm talking about quoting it absolutely wrong. And I said, uh, sir, is that really what that verse says? And he says, yeah, it's absolutely, I just read it right here. And there was a magnifying glass on the desk next to him, and I picked it up, and, and together we looked at it, and, and through the magnifying glass, he saw that he had misstated the verse. Now, we would not argue that the magnifying glass had more authority than Scripture, we would not argue that at all, but we would have to admit that the magnifying glass helped him and me to read that verse more accurately. And I think science is a magnifying glass. Science does not have authority over Scripture, but science can certainly help us in our understanding of Scripture. Well, what is this passage about? What is it really about? It's a very difficult passage to reach into and pull out exactly what all is there, and there's a lot there. For instance, this passage certainly is about the sovereignty of God. When I say the sovereignty of God, I'm talking about God's overall control and supervision over everything that happens in this universe. Does, is God sovereign to the point that he could stop the sun in the sky? That is, stop the rotation of the earth so that the sun appears still in the sky? The answer is, Absolutely, yes, he could and can. I don't think he's going to do that, but he absolutely can, and that's what this passage says that God actually did. God has that kind of power. He can part seas like he parted the Red Sea. He can cause a, a, a fire to consume a burning bush, and yet the burning bush is not burned up. Uh, he can cause, he, he can, can help his son to walk on the water. He can help his son, uh, or through his son, to cause storms to calm, to heal the sick who had terminal illnesses, to raise the dead. All of these things God is able to do. That's the sovereignty of God. Not only that, but if you study anything about the Amorite nations during this time, the Amorite nations believed that the sun and the moon were gods in the sky. And so, even more important than the idea that God is able to stop the sun and the moon in the sky is this idea that was certainly conveyed to the Amorites, and that is that the God of Israel is greater than the gods of the Amorites. And certainly, the God of Israel and the God of Jesus, the God who is Jesus, is greater than the little gods that we have in our lives. It's about the sovereignty of God. Second, it's about God's concern for his own people. God intervenes for the sake of his people. Now, I'm not up here to say to you that God will make the sun stand still for you. 
But I will tell you that in the middle of any of your battles, while he may not make the sun stand still, he'll make you stand straight and able to tackle whatever may come your way. God loves his people, and God intervenes sometimes, oftentimes, not in the way we would expect, but he cares enough for us that he helps us. He may not always heal the person who is sick with a terminal illness, although sometimes he will. But if he doesn't heal, then one thing is for sure, he will help you through that tragedy. God is concerned for his own people. This also is a passage that is about time. It's about the concept of time. Have you ever been in a place where you were doing some project, maybe doing some sort of work, there was something you needed to do, but it was, it was waxing on toward the end of the day, and you, need, you found yourself, oh, oh, there's just not enough hours in the day. I wish I had more time. This is a story about Joshua wishing that he had more time. And then some other times, not, some other times it's not that the time flies so that we, we need more time, it's that time does seem to stand still. You ever been at work one day? And it's one of those days, it's raining and overcast outside, much like it is right here, and you're, you're, you're in your office or you're on the assembly line, and, and it's kind of a dreary day, and it's, it's on about 1 o'clock, 1.30, and you don't get off till 6.30 or 7, and you're thinking, man, oh man, I feel like I've been here 12 hours. Time is just passing so Slowly. So sometimes time flies and we get to the end of a day and we think we need more time. Other times, time just seems to creep along and we end up saying, oh, I wish 6.30 would hurry up and get here. Time. But we're all encased in this thing called time. And the fourth thing I want to say about this passage is this, this story can be really frustrating. I love this story. I believe in this story, but I'll tell you, I find it really frustrating. And the reason I find it frustrating is because it seems that we rarely experience what Joshua experienced. We know God can do the impossible. We know that he can accomplish what we ourselves can't. And so... Because of our faith in God, we ask God to do the impossible, and and we ask him to do what we even think is within his will. Heal this person. Bring this rebellious son or daughter, this drug-addicted son, back into the fold. We know God has the power to do these things in 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 the snap of a thumb. And then sometimes God does those things. But it seems more often than we like, God does not do the impossible that we ask him to do. Now, I know what our answer to that always is. I know what my answer is. Well, you know, God, God is God. He, he won't always do what we ask him, but he knows best. His timing is best. And all that is true. It's not very helpful, but it is true. And so this story can be frustrating. I wish sometimes, not all the time, but I wish sometimes I could read this story and instead of, instead of uh, Joshua asking God to make the sun stand still and God doing it, I almost wish that I could read the story and Joshua asking to make it stand still and God says, now Joshua, I can do that, but I'm not going to do it. 
Because that's what I experience in my life a lot of times. And that's what you experience too if we're honest about our relationship and our dealings with God. But perhaps more than anything else, this story is about faith. You see, faith means that we trust God to the extent that no matter what our problems are, we believe that God can and will intervene to help us. He'll intervene in some way to help us. In all likelihood, he's not going to make the sun stand still. But I'll tell you what I do believe, and I hope you believe, is that while God may not and probably will not make the sun stand still, he can help you to stand straight when the troubles come. God can make your sun stand still. And in his own way, he will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love your word. We thank you, Lord, for those times in your word where you intervene on behalf of your people and you did amazing things because those stories tell us that you not only love your people then, but you love your people now to the extent that you're willing to intervene You want to intervene, and you do intervene to help us. Strengthen our faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen.